The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's so many strange things about the United States posture in cyber. There's this constant boasting about how powerful we are and this constant threats about doing these things to people who mess with us that don't seem to materialize and don't seem to be working. We're also the only country that we actually boast about living in adversary networks. I mean, that's what Defend Forward is. That's what it's been described as. We're the only country, as I said earlier, that talks about how powerful its, its capabilities are. It's just a very, very strange posture. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 14th, 2021. Jack Goldsmith is feeling a little bit grouchy today in a piece on Lawfare entitled Empty Threats and Warnings on Cyber. He blasts the Biden administration and its predecessors for quote, publicly pledging to impose consequences on Russia for its cyber actions over the last five years, usually, as here, following a hand-wringing government deliberation in the face of a devastating cyber incident. Goldsmith catalogs the recent history of administrations promising big action against Russia, yet seeming to take none, and he asks why the heck we would do this and why the heck we would thus erode our deterrent capability. He joined me in the virtual jungle studio to discuss the latest of these statements, the history of them, and the question of why the United States keeps speaking loudly and carrying such a small stick. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 14th. When red lines fade away. So, Jack, you seem pretty grouchy about the president's response to the latest Russian cyber attacks. Tell us why and tell us what he did. So, we don't know fully what his response is going to be to the latest round of cyber attacks, which I guess are these, these increasingly hostile ransomware attacks originating from Russia. But we do know one thing that the president did, and that's what that was on July 9th. He warned President Putin of Russia that the United States will take, quote, any necessary action, including unspecified consequences, if Russia doesn't stop its ransomware attacks. And the reason I'm a little grouchy about that is that the United States has been issuing threats and warnings about all the 
all the consequential things it's going to do to the Russians if they don't stop these cyber operations against us. And it's been doing it pretty persistently for five years now, even as the, the attacks continue. And it seems so obviously weak and self-defeating that I actually can't understand why we keep doing it. All right. So in the piece that you wrote in Lawfare today about this, you ticked through a bit of the history of these statements without, you know, itemizing it as you did in the in the piece. Give us a sense of, you know, just how consistent the United States has been at, you know, warning and clucking discontentedly. Yeah. So, well, this goes back much further than I went. And in fact, it goes back 10 or 15 years, but I just ticked off the main ones that I knew about going back to the Russian uh, interference in the 2016 election. And as you recall, you know, we knew then and we know much more now that the Obama administration was just in a knot about what to do in response to what they perceived was this ongoing interference along a couple of dimensions. And so they started off in October with a vague threat that we were going to do something unprecedented against Russia if they didn't stop some unprecedented, unspecified covert action. Now, I only track the public threats in this piece. You know, there are reports that Obama issued private threats a couple of times to Putin and that other officials did as well. And we don't know and we'll probably never know with certainty whether exactly what the threats were that Obama issued privately. But after the election, when they were less concerned about standing up to Russia, they were worried, the Obama team, as you recall, was worried that publicly standing up to Russia in too aggressive a way for what it was doing might be seen as favoring one party in the election, Hillary Clinton. So they kind of delayed their big guns until after the election. But after the election, again, we now know that they eventually conducted some kind of covert action against the Russians. But there was a whole bunch of talk about, by the president primarily, President Obama, about how we have the biggest cyber offensive weapons and we can use these things. And I'm not going to tell you what we're going to do, but we can do this. Uh, and so there were these vague threats that we were going to do something really awful to the Russians if, in response and if they did, if they ever did this kind of thing again. And then the Trump administration, there were fewer of these things because, I suppose, because not because there were fewer attacks, but because at least the very top of the administration wasn't as interested in making these kind of statements. But the Trump team did, in its cybersecurity policy, kind of make it easier, we know, for Cyber Command and DOD in general, sorry, I should say Cyber Command and perhaps CIA, to use offensive cyber weapons against the Russians. We, there was reporting about that, and we know that they, they were more aggressive. The defend forward policy got going then. And in 2019, National Security Advisor Bolton issued another threat saying, Russia is going to pay the price if we find out that they're doing these things. I can't even remember what that operation was that he was talking about. Bolton said, we will impose costs on you until you get to the point that it's not worth your while to use cyber against us. And that's kind of the typical statement that we've been making all along. And then there have been about three or four statements to that effect uh, by the Biden transition team, the president and the president-elect himself, and by the president uh, and his team uh, in 2021. So we've been persistently making these verbal threats, and it just seems to add up to something much worse than nothing to me. All right. So there were, I can imagine, 
three possible explanations for verbal threats of this magnitude combined with no visible action. The first is that we're bluffing and we actually don't really have the capacity to inflict anything like the damage that we are claiming to have. And administrations of both parties at different levels have basically issued idle threats that Putin knows are idle, and they've continued to do so because, I don't know, maybe losing face by acknowledging that you don't really have offensive capability as good as you say you do is itself a problem. Second possible explanation is that we have this capability, but we're tied in knots over how and under what circumstances to use it. And of course, we've all seen dozens and dozens of stories in the New York Times by Sanger and Nicole Proroth suggesting, you know, these kind of internal debates over when you can do what offensively. Third possibility is we actually are doing stuff, imposing consequences. We're just being really quiet about it. And the Russians also have an incentive to be really quiet about it. Which do you think is the best explanation for this string of very bombastic claims about what we can do, followed by no visible action? So I definitely think it's not the first. And I also don't think we haven't taken action. So let me explain. We do have, by everybody's account, and I'm sure, extraordinary offensive cyber capabilities of various sorts. Certainly, President Biden and President Bush and President Trump bragged about that. The Cyber Command often talks about their extraordinary capabilities. One of the amazing things that maybe we can talk about later is why we spend so much time bragging about what, how extraordinary our offensive capabilities are. No other country that I know of does that. But So I have no doubt that we have these capabilities. And also, we also know from reporting that there have been, we, we don't know the extent of it, but we know that there have been covert or covert type actions against the Russians. We know that we took down the Internet Research Agency, I think it was, in the 2018 elections. We know that Sanger reported, maybe Pearl Roth, that several, there, was, there was lots of reporting about a covert action that caused some unspecified harm after the 2016 election. There have been reporting that we've placed malware and logic bombs in the electrical grid and have the and have the power to bring it down. So we know that we've, or at least there's been credible reporting that the United States is engaged in stuff. But, but it's clear that whatever, that the combination of threats and secret and later partially leaked actions is not achieving its effect, not achieving the desired effect. These actions continue and whatever deterrence or preemption we're accomplishing, it's clearly not enough because the government's head keeps exploding when these things happen and they seem surprised by them. So I do think that we're not, it's pretty clear that we're not exercising our cyber capabilities to anything near their full extent in retaliation for these actions. And the reason for that is pretty clear. One, there are some international law constraints, but I think the real constraint in responding to actions like the Russian actions that are below the threshold of war. But the real concern, it comes up time and time again, and Sanger and Pearl Roth talked about this again in the story last week. And this goes back to 2016 and before. This is what tied them up in 2016. There's fear of escalation. 
There's fear that if we do anything really powerful to them, that they can do worse to us. And so we're stuck. And there's also this reporting about, as you say, Sanger and Pearl Roth have these story after story every time this happens about the hand wringing inside the government. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to take some specified action, but they're deliberating on their options. The whole package, at least to the in the public, we don't know what's going on fully in private, but the whole package in public just sends an extraordinary message of weakness and an inability to basically deter. And that's not news, by the way. I mean, you know, Clapper said four years ago, five years ago, we just don't have a deterrence capability. They haven't figured out how to deter. They haven't figured out how to defend. Defend Forward was supposed to, and again, we don't know how well this is working, but the idea of Defend Forward is that we would spend our time persistently in adversary networks and stop the attacks before they start. But Cyber Command was surprised by solar winds. So Nothing seems to be working, but the talk really stands out as kind of embarrassing and weak. So I want to come to the talk momentarily, but, you know, one of the things government officials have persistently said is that the response does not necessarily have to live in cyber just because the platform of the attacks are in our computer networks. You know, we can re-reserve the right to respond in other venues. One of the things that strikes me as odd about this posture is that we don't say things like, you know, every time one of these happens, we will sell more arms to the Ukrainians and the Georgians. We know how to make things hurt for the Russians without risk of cyber, of escalation in the cyber domain, right? And there does seem to be this weird expectation that somehow it's better to boast about our capabilities in cyber but not use them than it is to actually use our capabilities in much more mundane areas like, you know, sanctioning people close to Putin. Like, I mean, there are these things we can do. Russia is a you know, is a natural resource export economy, we can make it hard. I agree. I completely agree. And you're right that there's that our, our actual policy is that we can respond in any way we like, not just in cyber. It's also not the case, though, that it, it, a response, a non-cyber response could still be met by cyber retaliation. That doesn't necessarily make the escalation worry go away is the first point. No, but it but it does it remove the asymmetric concern that you raise. Like if we hit this, we're more vulnerable in cyber than they are. Right. But they could respond so two points. One the point I just made, they could respond in cyber to uh to uh retaliation in real space. But the other point has been we've and again I'm not an expert on this. I'm not completely up to speed, but we have been issuing all sorts of sanctions against the Russians for a whole bunch of things going back to the 2016 election and before. I'm pretty sure President Trump issued sanctions as well. And so we we are doing other forms of pain. We're issuing these indictments, which I think, as you know, are pretty useless, but some people think that that has some impact. Uh, We're issuing sanctions. And yes, we could be doing other things, and it's a puzzle and, you know, why we don't appear to be. Here's the, the problem. The overall picture that the public gets, and it's important, that you know, third-party states adversaries are watching. The, the picture that the public gets is 
the United States is getting hit by one surprising attack after another. Every time it gets hit, people say, oh, my God, this is horrible. Every time that happens, the government kind of wrings its hand in deliberation about what to do. And it makes these verbal threats and it promises if this happens again, we're really going to hit you hard. Then we hear about a little covert action later, maybe. And then there's nothing or maybe an indictment or sanctions. But it doesn't seem like we're giving anywhere nearly as as good as we're getting. And that's also confirmed by the persistence of the attacks. So it is a puzzle why why we don't use other forms of sanctions. But we have also used a lot of sanctions outside the cyber context. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Right. I, I didn't mean to suggest we weren't using outside. Uh, but look, if we wanted to do a dramatic gesture with respect to Russia and Russian sensibilities, you know, selling arms to their near abroad states with, in which they have these shadow wars would be something that would really get Vladimir Putin's attention quickly. And it seems... It seems like at some level there is a decision to not merely not do things that would, you know, poke the bear, but to kind of boast about the things we could do but are not doing. And it does seem to cross administration. And I agree with you, it couldn't be calculated to make us look more feckless. I agree. And just a couple of points. One, I don't know why. There are other things that we could be doing, cyber and non-cyber against the Russians. We're stuck in this terribly suboptimal equilibrium where for some reason, maybe they are worried about the escalation there. We just don't do it. But it's, but on your on your latter point about how bad we look, there's so many strange things about the United States posture in cyber. There's this constant boasting about how powerful we are and this constant threats about doing these things to people who mess with us that don't seem to materialize and don't seem to be working. We're also the only country that we actually boast about living in adversary networks. I mean, that's what Defend Forward is. That's what it's been described as. We're the only country, as I said earlier, that talks about how powerful its its capabilities are. It's just a very, very strange posture. It's not clear who the audience is. I assume since it can't make any sense that the audience would be our adversaries, that it must be some kind of bureaucratic logic or maybe trying to show Congress how tough we're being. But it, it it's just a big puzzle. It doesn't make sense to me at all. What do you mean? I mean, do you think it makes sense? Well, I, I think it has. I, I do think there's a bureaucratic component of the logic. And I think the, the history of the logic runs a little bit like this. For a long time, we didn't say anything. And we did offensive cyber operations, but we didn't talk about it. 
then we had Snowden and we had these attacks from both Russia and China, which, you know, show up like roughly at the same time. And we're outraged by the response from the attacks from Russia and China. But the world looks at us and says, you're just as bad as them. You're doing X, Y, and Z, you know, Snowden, blah, blah, blah. Right. And to which the response is a whole lot of communications designed to rebut that and to show that, you know, our offensive operations are different, which, you know, leaving aside the merits of whether that's true or false, causes you to end up describing a lot of things about what you will and won't do. And I think that's sort of the background to, you know, we put a lot of stuff out there and when we put a lot of stuff out there, we did it by way of saying we'll do X and Y, but never Z. So a good example of this is, oh, yeah, we steal secrets and we might even steal trade secrets, you know, from Chinese companies. But we would never steal secrets to give to U.S. industry to advantage them. Right. And so you end up in the course of saying that sort of thing, telling a lot about what you're trade craft or not the, the craft, but what the what the do's and don'ts within the US system are. I guess that's right. We do I mean so I, I agree a bit. Although so yes, we when it comes to commercial theft, we do draw this line that we won't steal to benefit our companies financially. But the reason we draw the line there is because we we, we don't have an interest in doing that. We can't do that. We we wouldn't know how to distinguish between companies. We do steal commercial secrets, just not for that purpose. And because that rule really harms us, that practice really harms us. So we draw a line there. But we it's not like when we're issuing these threats that, we're, that they're giving a lot of detail about what they're doing. There are these stories that come out later about, you know, taking down a network or shutting down an organization or planting logic bombs. But even there, Bobby Chesney had a great piece in SolarWinds when the sanctions came out. And he went through in great detail and he tried to draw this line about why we were criticizing the Russians for what we did and how it was different from what we're known to do to others. And there was some pretty fine and and elaborate, careful line drawing going on. There weren't a lot. There were some serious similarities. So I don't I just don't think that can explain. I mean, you're basically suggesting that we're, we're talking like this to try to establish a norm. But the rest of the world looks at us. This is one of the, I think, great failures of the U.S. government is that its perception of what it's doing does not match up to how the rest of the world perceives what it's doing. So I I just don't think that the talk can be that this talk about threatening retaliation can be serving a kind of norm guiding role. I just I just don't see it doing that. So let's get inside Biden's head a little bit because he, you know, he makes these statements goes to Geneva, presumably makes them in private. And then Putin does not appear that there's any slowdown as a result of that. And I think, you know, you could easily see this as a sort of gesture on Putin's part designed to humiliate him and to sort of show contempt, something he absolutely had to know was a possibility. So what do you think Biden is thinking when he makes these warnings, both before and after Geneva? 
I don't think he and his team could possibly think that they were going to influence Putin by that. I mean, Putin has heard this for five years and longer. He presumably knows what private pain he suffered. And it's pretty clear that the Russians have decided that it's in their enormous, overwhelming interest to keep up these operations. So I think that that statement, and I think a lot of these statements were contended for domestic audiences. There's pressure on on the president to do something in the face of these growing attacks. This pressure has been building for years and years and years. Biden said during the transition, he actually said that the Trump administration hadn't been tough enough on this. And he implied that, you know, because President Trump was in bed with the Russians, that he wasn't tough enough and he was going to be tougher. But now the kind of bluff is being called. And I just think he had to make a statement like that when asked. What else was he going to say? Oh, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't I didn't warn him. I mean, what else is he going to say? He could say we take attacks on the United States very seriously. We do not discuss, you know, I, I'm not prepared to say anything yet about our, any response we may or may not have taken. Yeah, yeah I agree. Some that, that that's a question why that good question why they didn't say that. In some some statements during the Obama administration had that flavor, but I think that would have been viewed as don't you think that would have been viewed weak at, at home in light of the notoriety of these attacks? I think so. I mean, I think the fundamental problem is that we're looking for a class of target that is devastating enough when you hit to send a real statement and to raise the stakes for Putin, but that we would not object to as a normal matter if the Russians did to us. We would just say, oh shit, you know, like they got us that time. And I'm skeptical that such a target exists, actually. This is is exactly the problem. This is the reality, the horrible reality for the United States that's emerged in the last five or six years. And that, and this is what people talk, mean when they say we don't have a deterrent capability in cyber. There is no such target that we're capable of making. And, and by the way, that we're capable of making that would bring enough pain that we're not sure would end up hurting us worse if it were applied reciprocally in some sense. And it doesn't even have to be applied reciprocally. It's just clear that we haven't, that we just haven't found the tool to scare them enough going forward to stop doing these things. And part of the problem is when you keep threatening and then don't follow through in a way that causes more pain than you're receiving, it sends the opposite. It sends the opposite message of the one you're trying to send. I mean, you can only deter not just by striking back once, but you've got to make clear and credible. The key is credibility. You have to make credible that you're going to do this every time and you're going to keep doing it or that the response will be so so painful the first time that you won't ever want to do it again. And, and I agree with your grouchiness, but you you acknowledge the pickle that they're in, that they, you know, it seems really weak to sort of say nothing. What is the appropriate response when Biden is confronted by the press in the aftermath of a solar winds or before Geneva and has to say something about this persistent pattern of attacks by the Russians? So that's a very hard question. And, you know, they basically have two options. One, the one they're doing, just in terms of verbal response, if that's what you're asking about. One response is to respond as they're doing, which is to threaten action and to warn Putin and to make sound tough. And the other is the quieter approach that you suggested, which is to say, we don't highlight 
the tools we're using to con conduct this stuff, but you know, something like rest assured that we will, or not even that, maybe something even shorter than that. Neither one of those, I can't think of another verbal option. And neither one of those responses is very helpful here, either to domestic audiences and certainly not to Putin and certainly not to third party nations. The essential problem is the talk is bad intrinsically because it, it seems not to be followed up by consequences that matter. But the essential problem is, is that the talk is a substitute for a real deterrence, a real deterrent threat, and we just don't have it. Yeah, so I, I want to try to say the same thing a different way. Okay. The fundamental problem is not the talk. The fundamental problem is that over the last five to seven years, we have not figured out what to do in yeah. response to these attacks. Exactly. And, yes. and so what we're doing instead when, when we have to say something is we threaten the things we could do that we have the technical capability to do without giving adequate consideration to the question of whether we are going to do these things, which the answer to which tends to be no. I agree. That's exactly what I think is going on. And it's also followed by always, always there's a Sanger story about this. There was one a couple of days ago. They're really deliberating. There's a back and forth. They're not sure what to do. All the options are on the table. I mean, that's that always is there. And then it always seems like that, yes, they always have some response, whether it's a public indictment or some kind of private action. But it always seems like, and it, as Sanger said in his last story, that the escalation fear wins the day. And by the way, the same people that are doing this now were there in the election 2016. A lot of the same people who lived through that and who I thought drew the lesson that they were too risk averse, that the escalation worry was exaggerated. That's what we've been hearing, that, that the conventional wisdom has changed about, about the escalation worry and the United States needs to be more aggressive. But it's not, it's not obvious that there's been any real change on that front. Right, because the general theoretical observation that we need to be more aggressive doesn't necessarily translate into a different yes-no outcome given a particular action plan in a particular circumstance with a particular set of concerns about development of possible escalation. Exactly. Well put. And I'd also add that you know, every one, every round of this, of these attacks are different. I mean, the, the election interference was one thing, and then we focused on election interference and solar winds was going on at the same time. And we appear to have just missed that completely. And then now it's a ransom, ransomware that we're worried about. And it just seems like these are all discrete cost benefit analyses that we just don't have full planning for that we haven't thought through to the bottom. And so it just seems like every one of these attacks is kind of a discrete experience in the government where they try to figure out from scratch what they're going to do. And it just, I just don't understand why they don't see what a horrible message this sends. They have to understand that. And yet they keep doing it. So if Joe Biden called you tomorrow and said, I listened to your podcast with that Wittis guy, <laughs> I agree with you. We're, we're not doing well. You got to believe me that the, underlying questions are really hard and, you know, we're working on an underlying deterrence policy. What should I be saying? How should I handle this? What would the top level guidance be? Is it just shut up in the meantime? 
So my top level guide, I don't have a great solution to the verbal puzzle because as we just discussed, the verbal threats relate to the lack of a real deterrence capability. And those things are connected. And until they develop a real deterrence capability, I think that the verbal talk is invariably going to be uh, self-defeating. So I would just say less. I would always say less, but that has domestic costs. But I do think, and this is, this is an unpopular opinion I have, but I'll state it anyway. I do think that there's an option that hasn't been explored. And I've been talking about this for years and no one pays attention, but I'll say it one more time. You know, whenever we are defend, we clearly are not good at defending our networks. And we're clearly not good at deterring adversaries from doing bad things to our networks. In, in international relations, when those things happen, especially in a military slash arms context, the natural third solution to explore is cooperation, which means in this context, maybe we'll get relief from the Russians doing certain things to us for the relief they clearly want from the things we do to them. Putin has made clear that he, he's been clearly angry about U.S. meddling in his politics through cyber and other means. So, you know, the, the basic option that hasn't been tried is some sort of cooperative arrangement where we can reach, it doesn't have to be a treaty, it couldn't be a treaty, but some kind of informal agreement that we won't do certain things to them if they won't do certain things to us. Now, there are lots, there are lots of problems with that. You've talked about that more in the China context than in the Russia context, I think. I've talked in, in both, actually. I mean, but I, I, I think I first started talking about it in the 2016 election with the Russia stuff. But there are problems, there are many problems with it and or difficulties. Like values, right? Well, I mean, it, well, it, it's fun, fundamentally the objection to it is, wait a minute, what they're calling kind of reciprocal cyber offenses is really our, you know, democracy promotion stuff. It's like our free speech values. What so enraged Putin uh, about Hillary Clinton was her advocacy for protesters. Yep. Isn't there a bit of an apples and oranges thing going on there? Yes and no. Yes. I'm not certainly not equivocating the then the moral valence of their interference with the moral valence of our democracy promoting interference. But in international relations and given our, the conduct between nations, these things, there's no metric here that there's no common metric here. We right. all the time, all the time we reach cooperative arrangements with serious adversaries. Think about arms control in the cold war. Think about arms control. Now there's just all sorts of cooperative arrangements we make with serious adversaries whose values we don't share because we think it brings us a benefit on balance and it's, it's a national security benefit. I could turn what you said, flip it on its head and say, this value is very important to us. The kinds of things that they're interfering with, especially the, the election stuff, that is at the top of the list of importance to us. Why wouldn't we want to reach a deal to seek relief from that in exchange for things that we would give up? And here we get to the nub of, of the matter. The United States is, has never, ever once discussed or been willing to give up any of its offensive cyber tools. That is just not something that I've ever seen on the table, ever seen discussed. So we want to maintain those capabilities, but we're on the losing end of the stick right now, it seems, by all accounts. And it seems to me, again, there are other problems with this cooperative possibility, but it seems worth exploring. Uh, the Russians have signaled that they're interested in this. 
I'm as cynical as anyone is about the difficulty of cooperative arrangements and how and about international law fostering hard cooperation. So I'm not naive about how hard this is, but it, it has worked in other contexts. And frankly, I, I just think it's it's a solution that's obviously worth exploring because the other defense and deterrence just aren't working, nor is deterrence by denial or whatever you want to call uh, defend forward. The combination of tactics we're using quite clearly isn't working. And it's really amazing if you look at all the David Sanger stories after each one of these events, it's the same story. Surprised, unprecedented, big deliberation, all options on the table. It's the same story every time. And the sum total of those stories, I think, is is kind of devastating for our national security. We're going to leave it on that cheerful note. Jack Goldsmith, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You need to do the thing that you haven't done yet, which is to say to rate the Lawfare Podcast and share us on all the socials. Just do it. Stop thinking about it. It'll alleviate your sense of guilt the moment you do. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.